Roger Berkowitz. I'm Larry Gulko, and this is Name Brands, the podcast about the story behind your favorite brands. With us today on Name Brands are two of the most prominent authorities in public health, particularly when it comes to food and diet, Walter Willett and Eric Rim. Dr. Walter Willett is professor of epidemiology and nutrition at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and professor of medicine at the Harvard Medical School. He has served as chair of the Department of Nutrition at the Chan School of Public Health for 25 years. Dr. Willett grew up in the Midwest, attended the University of Michigan Medical School before coming to Harvard and getting his doctorate from the School of Public Health. Dr. Willett has focused much of his work over the past 35 years on the development of methods using both questionnaire and biochemical approaches to study the effects of diet on the occurrence of major diseases. He has applied these methods starting in 1980 in the Nurses' Health Studies 1 and 2 and the Health Professionals' Follow-Up Study. Together, these cohort that include nearly 300,000 men and women have repeated dietary assessments are providing the most detailed information on the long-term health and consequences of food choices. Dr. Willett has published over 1,800 articles primarily on lifestyle risk for heart disease and cancer, as well as having written the definitive textbook, Nutritional Epidemiology. Additionally, he has four books out for the general public, including Eat, Drink, and Be Healthy. He's a member of the National Academy of Medicine and is among the three most cited persons in all areas of science. Joining Dr. Willett in the studio is his longtime colleague, Dr. Eric Rim, a professor of epidemiology and nutrition and director of the program in cardiovascular epidemiology at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, as well as being a professor of medicine at the Harvard Medical School. For over two decades, he's conducted extensive research on the health effects of diet and lifestyle in relation to obesity and chronic disease. He is internationally recognized for his extensive work in the study of health effects of moderate alcohol consumption, whole grains, micronutrients, and polyphenols. He also studies the impact of local and national food policy as it relates to the improvement of diets of school children and for the one in seven Americans on food assistance programs. He has previously served on the Institutes of Medicine's Food Policy Committee and the Scientific Advisory Committee for the 2010 U.S. Dietary Guidelines for Americans. Now, it's, it's interesting. When we say public health, that encompasses a lot. So would you gentlemen sort of tell us what public health encompasses in general and what you do, guys focus on in particular? Well, public health uses uh, many different methods to deal with the health of whole populations. I was trained as a physician. There we were dealing one-on-one, -on -one, one person at a time, but, and that's very important. But many issues related to health that can't really be addressed very well that way. Uh, for example, clean air, clean water, safe food, uh, that really does need to be addressed on a population basis, often with a real emphasis being on prevention rather than managing conditions that have already been diagnosed. Yeah, I think it's... Um Interesting that many of, I'm not a physician, but many of the physicians I work with in public health started out by treating physicians for five, treating patients for five or 10 years and, and being very frustrated that they were getting the same type of patient that was coming in who was, you know, had all the risk factors but wasn't able to sort of prevent them before they're coming in. So they really wanted to be able to give back on a larger scale. So pu pu public health really is, you know, thinking about larger populations, whether it be the school lunch program or whether it be food stamps or whether whether it be how a population should eat, is where it has been most of my focus. I'm going to say when, when Roger did the introduction, I'm thinking, I think after our conversation today, I think I have to go home and throw out half the things in my refrigerator. We just have to be very careful about what we say. Yeah. I should have a photo. <laughs> now, now at, at the base of all this, and, and, and Walter, you've been in, involved with this, I believe, since 1980, is the, um, the nurse's health study. Now, people hear that quoted all the time, but folks like Larry and I might not understand what that means or what that entails. Could you talk a little bit about it? Sure. Uh, this grew out of, um, first of all, uh, a very focused study by our colleague, uh, Dr. Frank Spicer, 
who realized uh, back in the mid-1970s that many American women were using oral contraceptives, and uh, we didn't know about the long-term effects of oral contraceptives. So he enrolled with uh, several others about 121,000 registered nurses across the United States in an ongoing study to get detailed information about their use of oral contraceptives and mainly looking at the risk of breast cancer. <clears throat> I joined the next year uh, to work actually on smoking and uh, risk of heart disease, uh, but realized this would be a really uh, tremendous population in which we could study the long-term effects of diet. And I was interested in diet and nutrition and realized that people were being given advice, told to avoid eggs, avoid fat, uh, whatever, and there was almost no real evidence to support those recommendations. And therefore, we were really missing a large long-term study looking at diet and the long-term consequences of food choice. So beginning in 1980, we uh, had developed some standardized self-administered questionnaires and shown that they uh, showed that they could validly assess dietary intake. And then uh, beginning in 1980, about 95,000 women returned those questionnaires, and we've been tracking them ever since. What's very important is uh, we collect information about everything we can imagine that might affect their health. Uh, their smoking, of course, physical activity, uh, medication use, uh, uh, what side they sleep on, how many moles they have on their left arm. <laughs> that, uh, uh, you yeah, name it, yeah, it's in our yeah. computer. Uh, and we, we knew that the registered nurses uh, were committed to health and knowledgeable and were likely to be really good long-term participants. So st now after 40 years, uh, almost 90% of the women who are still alive are still actively participating in this study. And therefore, that's made it possible to look at many issues related to diet. Uh, we've, for example, found that moderate egg consumption is not as bad as it was, that fat per se is not bad for us. The type of fat is tremendously important. Trans fat's really bad for us, uh, and now it's almost gone. Uh, largely based on that kind of evidence, so that uh, that's largely a, based on you. you yeah, that's, uh, right. Uh, we've uh, uh, had a, an important role there, and in fact, you had a great role showing it's uh, not just that it's bad. We showed that, but you showed it's possible to get it out of the food supply, well, and the food well, was still tastes good. Because you banged me over the head with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, you proved it. You made <laughs> French fries that were made without trans fat. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, so let me just quickly <laughs> tell that story because it's, it's kind of an interesting one. Because you know, those of us who are in the restaurant business, we think we know nutrition. And if you ask me, I, you know, I, look, fish the healthiest of all protein, correct? So I got invited to do a, a roundtable to sit in on a roundtable discussion maybe 15 years ago. Uh, Walter and Eric were there. And, the, and, and so we went around the table, So and, they, and, and Walter had the audacity to ask me what kind of, of cooking oil I used to fry my fish. And I was very proud. I said, oh, you say lard? Uh, no, no. I said 100% pure kosher vegetable oil, which we change daily. And Walter was unimpressed. And he said, uh, yeah, uh, uh, is, is it uh, any trans fats? And I'm thinking... Trans fat doesn't sound like a good term. I said, I don't think so, but, you know, how would I know? And he said, well, you know, go to the container that, you know, the, the it comes in and see if it says hydrogenated or partially hydrogenated. Well, sure enough, it did. So now I'm thinking, oh, now I'm a hypocrite. I serve the healthiest of all proteins, but in a, in, a, in, a, in a manner that perhaps isn't healthy. And so that started the odyssey. This was maybe 15 years ago. I said, I, I've got to get it out. And I'm thinking it's easy. So I go to people trying to eat, get it out, and everyone looks at me like I have two heads. Make a long story short, and then in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, if I change the oil, is the food going to taste as good? Because the reality is, if people are used to a certain flavor profile and you screw around with it, you know, am I going to lose half my, uh, my, my gas base? So we did an experiment, blind tasting. I, I did have some oils that were, were uh, trans fat free, and I put some that were, and I had people do a blind tasting. Sure enough, everyone pointed to one that they liked the best. And I'm thinking, oh, God, it's going to be the trans fat. <laughs> and, and it wasn't. It was the trans fat free oil. Yeah. And the reason I, I want, because when, when things were trans fat, it modifies and changes the molecular structure. So it acts more as a preservative mm -hmm. and it prevents the true flavors from coming through. So we, we ended up getting it out. And again, had I not been banged over the head and, 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 and Walter, you just tell people in general, because now the reason it is off 
off labels in every uh, in any uh, food dump and and it's outlawed throughout the country is because of the work that Walter did. Walter, would you tell people what it is about trans fats that kill people? Right, trans fats uh, were this almost invisible toxic substance in our food supply. And uh, uh, trans fats uh, start off uh, before they become trans fat as the liquid vegetable oil that we get from soybean oil or from uh, corn oil, some uh, canola oil, uh, uh, sometimes even olive oil. Uh, and uh, the food industry uh, really had two objectives in creating trans fat. They, they didn't intend to create trans fat, but the, par- the process called partial hydrogenation, takes the natural fatty acids that comprise these plant oils that are the, uh, they're part of the structure of every cell in our body, and they're also the building blocks for uh, hormones and other biologically active molecules that control inflammation, control blood clotting, many other critical processes. So uh, these are critical biological molecules, but they're subjected to this industrial process called partial hydrogenation where they're heated up to a high temperature and hydrogen is bubbled through these oils. And that uh, changes the shape of these molecules. And once you change the shape of these critical molecules, you completely change their function. At the beginning, back when we started this work in the late 1970s, we weren't sure what the effects would be, but it's like throwing sand into a finely running Swiss watch. It's more likely to cause harm than benefit. It, it, It seemed like it was really risky thing to do. So we started collecting the data on trans fat in the, in the 19, uh, in 1980. And as it turns out, they have many adverse consequences. Now, the reason the food industry was using them was, first of all, to make uh, solid fats out of liquid fats to mimic butter uh, as margarine and to mimic lard as vegetable shortening. Uh, that's because our culinary tradition emphasized hard fats. Uh, That was the northern European, the base of the northern European culinary tradition. Um, And the other reason that the industry used partial hydrogenation was to destroy the omega-3 fatty acids that are naturally present in some of these plant oils. And uh, as Roger knows very well, and uh, that omega-3 fatty acids are essential. Fish are a good source, but plants can also provide an important source as well. And the trouble is these omega-3 fatty acids, if they sit around on shelves at room temperature for months and and longer in the grocery stores or in warehouses, they tend to go rancid more easily than other types of fat. So by using partial hydrogenation, they could increase shelf life of the food, but not our shelf life. And, of course, that's what's <laughs> we're really interested in that. I have a general question. Do you think that there's a risk in the newest message, fat is good, backfiring because people will eat excessive fat and I eat other stuff naturally, wind up gaining weight, similar to the 80s with the low-fat craze, and we consume a lot, a lot of carbs. What, what, what's your take on that? Well, this is, uh, you're right. We need to be careful about the message here and get it uh, as, as simple as we can, but not too simple. And it's not that all fats are good. We In the 1980s and 90s, it was all fats are bad. And uh, we have to be careful the uh, the opposite isn't correct either, that not all fats are good for us because, again, trans fats are really bad for us. And uh, saturated fats in large amounts are not good for us either. Uh, it's really the unsaturated uh, plant oils and plant foods uh, that many plant foods contain those naturally, like uh, edamame, uh, uh, and uh, there's small amounts in whole grain products as well. So the, what, the real message is the type of fat is really important, and the exact percentage of calories from fat in the diet really is not very important if you have uh, healthy types of fat and healthy forms of carbohydrate, uh, then you can really have a healthy and, diet. And, and Doctor, what, 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 how do you define for our audience the healthy ones? Yes, uh, the healthy fats are uh, almost all the fats from plant sources uh, that uh, the, the major oils that we consume in our diet are olive oil, canola oil, soybean oil, uh, uh, some corn oil. Still, those are all healthy fats. They're liquid as oils. We can pour them. Palm oil is one uh, that is higher in saturated fat. So we uh, do need to be more careful about that. Coconut oil is somehow that's developed a halo around it for reasons that are mysterious to me. There's no good evidence that eating a lot of 
uh, coconut oil is good for us. Uh, and th- palm oil and coconut oil are higher in saturated fat. So having them in modest amounts, if we like the flavor of coconut oil, fine. But as an everyday oil, uh, those oils that are higher in saturated fat uh, are better replaced by the liquid more in saturated oils. If you're looking at the, I mean, the, the simple way, if you're in a grocery store, is to look at the nutrition facts panel. That's what it's there for, to tell you that the mono and polyunsaturated fats are good and the saturated and trans are bad. So really turning it into something where you can grab a package and look at it and know what's there is good. But it's also good to remember that it's not like any one food only has saturated or only has mono. You know, most foods have a range of fatty acids. So you want to choose those oils, like Walter was saying, or other foods that have much more mono and polyunsaturated fat than they do trans. You know, as Walter mentioned, I have a question. Like the other day I was buying peanut butter and there's a peanut butter brand out there that's regular peanut butter. And we've, we've all experienced this. Yeah. And then there's a less fat peanut butter. You look, the less fat is more sugar. So something has to give. When you're looking at a peanut butter or any kind of product, salad dressing, whatever, light versus regular, are we better off just having the regular and moderation because they have the light? Something else is going to be giving, right? Uh, in, in general, that's true, that uh, th- that kind of substitution of uh, replacing the fats, even the healthy fats, with things like sugar is really a step in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, in general, having the, uh, the regular version is going to be good. Uh, and uh, I think the, uh, but again, we have to be careful. In general, the plant sources of foods will be healthier. For example, uh, nuts, they are high in fat, but uh, they naturally have mostly unsaturated fats. And compared to, say, red meat, uh, it's, uh, uh, nuts ha- are going to be much healthier, partly because they have a better form of fat than red meat, which is much higher in saturated fat and much lower in the polyunsaturated fats. Uh, but we can't again, judge a product purely by its fat content either. And that's why in our long-term studies, we look at uh, nutrients like type of fat, but we also look at whole foods and whole dietary patterns as well. There's no simple one definition that will sort of divide the world into good foods and bad foods. (laughs) So, so, So along those lines, one of the more confusing things out there is this food pyramid that we're supposed to look at. Now, I know, Eric, you take exception with that. Tell a little bit about that, because most people, you know, it's it's published by the Department of Agriculture. It must be, uh, but, uh, yeah, sometimes there are reasons why they put certain things at different plateaus in the, uh, in, you know, in the pyramid. So without getting into trouble, could you talk a little bit about that? Roger, are you trying to create skepticism? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the dietary guidelines and food pyramids and now the, the healthy plate are put out, are, are really um, ways for our government to try to communicate to the population, here's what we think should be healthy. Um, and the, mostly, maybe when I was educated as a child, there was a pyramid there or... 20 or 30 years ago, there was a pyramid. Mostly the pyramid is gone now, and they're using the healthy eating plate as a better way of trying to capture. Since no one eats off a pyramid, like the physical structure of it was meant to, you know, eat little what's on the top and more what's on the bottom. But even that became confusing. So they, the, the U.S. government sort of borrowed from other countries that were using a healthy plate to say this is where the grain should be. This is how much fruit you should have. This is how much vegetables you have. But it's even that doesn't really communicate it. I mean, you can get a healthy plate and fill in all the quadrants and you can be doing it with something which is a fast food cheeseburger with a french fry and you know an apple slice and it looks like it fits properly on the healthy plate but that's not so sounds healthy. like a happy meal to me yeah, right. <laughs> exactly and so you know that is the concern is that there really has to be a little bit more thought put into what's on the healthy plate and you know the USDA does as good a job as they can but they also are conflicted because they're the US Department of Agriculture so they're supposed to be supporting the dairy production and they're supposed to be supporting the meat consumption uh, production in this country so there is a kind of inherent conflict of interest so I think Walter and I have sort of talked about this in public before and sort of making a push to separate the guidelines from the USDA because they have too many competing pressures and it would be nice if it was Institute of Medicine did it or if there was you know more 
sort of independent groups involved in creating the guidelines. So you really could just focus on the science and not worry about other sort of lobbying pressures. So essentially, the pyramid is propaganda. Yeah. It's a mix. The initial yeah. pyramid yeah. had said essentially take fat out of your diet. It was only a really small part of the top is where you should have fat. And the bottom was this is where all the grains are. That could be a lot of white bread. So talk about a you know upside down pyramid where you, mm. you, you got rid of the healthy fats and you put in processed <laughs> carbohydrates. It's no wonder this country became overweight and obese uh, in the 80s and 90s because we all went running to fat-free cookies thinking this is so healthy. It's a fat-free cookie. But all it was was processed carbohydrate that did what it was supposed to do. It stored energy. So people gained weight. Well, you know, Roger mentioned Happy Meal. I want to mention another company that I think is fascinating. Is that, you know, a little while ago, a few months ago, Burger King announced they're going to have now burgers during breakfast. So I want to get you taken this. They say, who needs breakfast when you can start your day with a flame broiled burger? Chime in on that one. Oh boy, if we don't have I mean, I mean, obesity you know, you know, and diabetes you know, already. Right. <laughs> talk about social irresponsibility. In my opinion, this is bad. So, so, so kind of they, they, they sort of took. I think a good idea and, and, and really prostituted. I think the good idea mm-hmm. might be, and I've heard you guys talk about it, breakfast is good. You should be eating breakfast, breakfast. in a certain amount of your calories. But then they go but not just breakfast. Right. Uh, that is yeah. uh, definitely the wrong way to start yeah. a day. I mean, it's interesting to imagine, and uh, you've got a lot of creativity, Roger, that you might even be able to have a healthy burger for breakfast. It, might, it would probably be a veggie burger and uh, certainly whole grain bun around it and put uh, plenty of vegetables in there. You could think of a of, of a healthy breakfast that sort of looked like a burger. But yeah, this is but, but uh, this is irresponsible. Is. In fact, you know, kids are going to get diabetes early and die prematurely from this. Obesity is going to the roof, right. Yeah, this, is, this is, you know, what do we do with the, people like that? The, the thing mean? that really irritates me, this Lura, and let's face it, if you say to a kid, do you want chicken, chicken fingers for breakfast, Timmy, or do you want an egg white? Oh, I'll, I'll have the chicken fingers. I'll have cotton candy, whatever. Because what kid would say no? So to me, it's so wrong for a company to lure children in, in a world today where we have diabetes and obesity going through the roof. It's not a fad, as you both know more than I do. It's a trend, and it's a scary trend. Absolutely. The latest projections uh, done by Dr. Gortmaker and his group at our school show that given the rates of obesity in young children now and the trajectories that have been happening for the last couple of decades, by the time those kids are age 35, almost 60% will be obese. Uh, It's just horrendous. That's full obesity, not just overweight. Uh, And so we are... Definitely headed in a, we're in a um, bad situation now, but it's uh, on track to be even worse. So uh, this kind of promotion and really exploitation of children is, is, I think, frankly, criminal. Mm. Mm. You know, to play off breakfast a little more and then get off breakfast, another thing I just read the other day in the Chicago Tribune, that they say a slice of pizza is better than giving cereal to your children. They say it's more nutritious has protein, carbs, and it's better for the kids, more balanced diet, and your kids will not experience a quick sugar crash. Yeah, of course, that depends on what kind of cereal it is, because there are some pretty horrendous ones you are comparing horrible with horrible. Uh, Can I come back to that uh, pyramid and uh, plate that Eric was talking about? Uh, As as Eric mentioned, the uh, plate uh, put out by the Department of Agriculture is re- it's maybe a little step in the right direction, but it does not give people the information that they need to make healthy choices. It just says grains, for example, and it makes a huge difference whether it's refined grains or whole grains. It just it says protein. Well, it makes a huge difference whether it's uh, a beef compared to fish or uh, legume beans uh, or nuts. It, it says nothing about the type of oil. So our department uh, put our heads around the table and we. Uh, tried to put together an alternative plate, um, which gives uh, a, a little more detail that people do need about the type of grain, the, uh, the healthiest forms of protein, the healthiest types of fat. First of all, that plate started off with a glass of milk by the side, is implying that you need a glass of milk with every meal. And Eric and I both grew up in the Midwest, and we know that you do. But actually, if you look around the world, uh, that most populations do not consume any dairy products as adults. And in fact, 
they have lower rates of fracture than in the milk-drinking countries. Uh, we do need some uh, calcium for sure, and modest amounts of uh, dairy are fine, but three servings a day is uh, not necessary and, and does increase prostate cancer risk almost for sure and has some other negative effects. So that we started right off there. Then where it says grains, uh, we emphasized whole grains. Uh, and where it talks about uh, protein, uh, we... Uh, first of all, I uh, uh, talked about the forms of protein that are healthy, which include uh, uh, <coughs> pol- poultry, fish, uh, and uh, emphasizing some, an- some plant sources of protein, such as beans, uh, soy products, and nuts, and then really avoiding processed meats. Uh, the harms of that are many, and, ke- and limiting red meat. Uh, occasionally, uh, in fact, I th- think we should consider red meat like lobster. I really love it, but I don't have it every day. I, I have it a few times a year. Um, and then we went on to the vegetables and did not include potatoes as a vegetable, which the USDA does, and had a little Those message. Those Idaho potato farmers. <laughs> <laughs> had a message, a message about healthy fats, which would be the liquid plant oils. It's, it's really easy to choose a healthy fat. If you, can, if you can pour it out of the bottle, it's going to be a healthy fat, basically, now that trans fats are illegal, will be illegal in, in a month or two. Yeah. So that's that's pretty simple, but there's that little added bits of information that make a huge difference between a really unhealthy diet and something that will be. So it's, real, it's really it's really good. easy for the consumer to follow what you just mentioned, your yeah. choices, and just buy the right products. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but but sometimes the information gets whipsawed back and forth. And so, as an example, we're talking about breakfast. Virtually everyone I know has coffee. Okay, and and there was a study out of the School of Public Health uh, from the Netherlands on on coffee and coffee consumption. All of a sudden, I'm I'm reading recently that in California, a judge uh, is saying that you should have a cancer warning on on beverage on coffee beverages in California. Uh, help us here. Yeah. Well, California's an interesting place. <laughs> I mean, it's a wonderful place in many ways, and they're way ahead of us on, uh, uh, on efficiency of yeah. automobiles and anti-pollution and things. But they did pass a law, which I, as I understand this is where it's coming from, that says if there's a carcinogen, that it should the food should be labeled. But it makes absolutely nothing. It's nuts to put it on coffee because we've looked at this. Other people have looked at this. Uh, in many, many studies, and we do not see increased risks of any type of cancer with coffee consumption. In fact, coffee uh, very substantially reduces risk of liver cancer by about 50%, and that's been really? documented wow, in yes. many studies now, wow. and, and uh, probably modestly reduces risk of breast cancer, substantially reduces risk of diabetes. But uh, there's from humans... Uh, studies, uh, strong studies, replicated studies showing reductions in cancer risk, and you have to put a label on it saying increases cancer risk because of some laboratory tests on some component of coffee. Uh, you know, very, very far from actual human uh, evidence. How, how many cups of coffee do you recommend? And also in the coffee, you mentioned milk before. You know, the, the, we heard that this whole milk is going to rise again. This whole milk, this soy milk, this almond milk, this 2%, this fat free. What's happening there, too? Yeah, I think, you know, coffee is one of those things. I think, other than alcohol, it's probably the most studied beverage because people really want to find something wrong with it because of, you know, <laughs> the, the caffeine so damn has, good. A, has an addictive <laughs> property, so it must be yeah. bad for you. And yeah. so that's why Walter is saying, you know, there's been, it, the studies have been validated. There's, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of studies that have followed people in countries all over the world for decades and not not showing any long-term harm from from um, drinking coffee. The, the in fact, only, benefits. Yeah, benefits. <laughs> Most of them are benefits. The only <laughs> exception is um, if you make boiled coffee where it doesn't go through a filter and you drink a lot of it, that some of the lipid from the coffee bean that usually would get filtered out goes into and actually can in- increase your LDL cholesterol a little bit. That's your bad cholesterol. But you have to drink six to ten cups a day of sort of pressed coffee or boiled coffee instead and, of And filtered. which indigenous people does it that way? Yeah. Norwegians yeah. <laughs> no, um, did. <laughs> yeah, right. There are a few left out there. But So, I mean, I think the question about 
Yes, I think if you go into your favorite coffee shop in the morning and say, you know, I'll have a large coffee and can you add four sugars, cream, you know, two creams and whatever, yeah, it doesn't give you a pass that everything in that cup is now healthy because it's touched by coffee. Clearly, if you do that enough, the cream adds up. It, it's usually not that much, but it does add up and that's saturated fat. And, you know, adding five sugars to a cup of coffee it makes it into sort of half of a 12-ounce Coke by, by putting that much sugar in. So, you know, the, again, in moderate I, I think what we see mostly where there's really no harm at all, in fact, great benefit, is in the range of up to three to four cups a day. Well, since you just mentioned five sugars this morning, this happened to me. I was at Dunkin' Donuts, and the woman in front of me ordered a coffee, a small coffee. Can I have five equals? Yeah. And I'm sitting there going, five equals? Wow. Yeah. So there's a, that's a sugar substitute. She's yeah. right. really no, addicted no. to sweetness. She's addicted her, her to sweetness. Right. Right. Her brain so addicted to yeah. that. So, 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 so sugar, artificial or natural sugar substitute, is there a better or a worse yeah. one yeah. on a scale? That's yeah. a huge question. Yeah, we've looked at that uh, in a moderate degree. Um, and others have too. The evidence is very clear that sugar is harmful. And we've looked hard to see if we could f- see harmful effects for weight gain and diabetes uh, uh, and some other outcomes with the artificial sweeteners. And we don't see those same adverse outcomes. So uh, virtually for sure, the artificial sweeteners are going to be better than the real sugar. Now, that doesn't say just load up on five, uh, five packets a day. Uh, there's, uh, first of all, some concern that that does leave us conditioned to this very high level of sweetness, and that distorts our perception of other foods. We can't appreciate the gentle sweetness of a fresh carrot or a fresh apple. It may distort food choices that way. Uh, and we still don't have long-term studies going on decades for some of the artificial sweeteners that are used, like Splendus in particular. I do, I do have some hypothetical concerns about that, but no long-term studies exist. What are the other ones like, what's called uh, Trivia? Uh, that's sort of a... a stevia. A stevia. Stevia. Yeah, the, the big... Trivia most, is what you... Yeah. Right. That's, that's <laughs> a, <laughs> trivia is what we teach all day long. <laughs> no. I'm God. But aspartame is the most widely used in, in beverages in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, I make the analogy with a nicotine patch that the, uh, these artificial sweeteners are uh, definitely not as nearly as harmful as the real thing, sugar, uh, yeah. but probably not something we want to depend on for the rest of our life. And it's better to switch over to healthy beverages, water being number one, but tea and coffee are very good and alcohol in moderation for, for some people as well. Well, speaking of uh, of alcohol, uh, we're, we're sitting across from one of the gurus in, in alcohol consumption, uh, Eric Rim. Uh, Eric, uh, did you drink it, before you came here? <laughs> I refuse to answer that question. But Eric, no, it, it, it's fascinating because yeah. when, when, when Eric has spoken to groups, people are on the edge of their seats because this is something, it's a, it's a highly consumed beverage. Is it good for you? Is it not good for you? Eric? Thank you, Roger. Um, that's... The science to me is clear. As I said, you know, besides alcohol, coffee is the most studied beverage, but alcohol is the most studied beverage and has been studied now. I, I keep track. It's up to like 116 different population studies have been conducted across the globe. And so the science is clearly there that people who drink in moderation have lower rates of heart disease, have lower rates of diabetes, and have lower rates of ischemic stroke compared to people who abstain and compared to people who drink a lot more. So. At a population level, if you're talking public health, it, you know, we would have much lower rates of heart disease if everybody drank a drink a day. But what does that mean? Are you going to tell non-drinkers to start drinking? Um, some cardiologists tell their 65-year-old patients who have heart disease and they find out they drink once a month, they say, you know what, you could drink a little bit more. You know, it's okay. It's, it, it will be beneficial. But you have to know the individual. Some people start out drinking lightly or moderately and end up going to abuse it. And there's, you know, 10% of the population in the U.S. probably has a serious drinking problem. So I'm not going to tell those people to drink. And, you know, you could tell those people to drink less. They've been thinking about that for decades usually, and they, they aren't incapable of doing that, so they should drink nothing. So I, I think you know, the, the biggest question is who do you target that message for? Because we know why alcohol is beneficial. It increases your good cholesterol and slows your blood's ability to clot. 
And so that's what causes a heart attack. So it's clear, the biology is clear. We actually launched the largest study in the world, a $100 million NIH trial to test what is the effects of drinking one drink a day, where we're going to take half the people and ask them to abstain for six years, and the other half of the people, we're going to buy them a drink a day for six years. And we're doing it across the globe in Nigeria and Denmark and really? Spain and the U.S. That just launched. We actually have the first four people recruited in the study. And we're shooting for 7,800. <laughs> so it's really early on, and we're going to have to Larry, get Larry, put years. your hand down. Yeah. <laughs> well, the problem is that if you agree to be in the study and we flip a coin and you get tails, that means you can't drink for six years. So if you get heads, we'll, we'll get you a drink a day. But, Eric, when you're talking about drinking, we're talking about, like, wine for dinner, not a mudslide, Right. Well, I think that's a misperception that it, only wine is good. Yeah, um, really? And, Red I mean, wine, there, too. Huh? Yeah, right. There's studies in Germany back from the 70s and 80s where almost no wine was consumed. They were drinking a beer. The people who drank a beer a day you know, had a 30% lower risk of a heart attack compared to people who abstained. Wow. You look at it in Finland where no one drank beer or wine. They were drinking spirits, and it was the same thing. I do think there's something to how people drink it, so I think having it with a meal is better than you know, just – going out and doing a shot on an empty stomach because clearly you absorb the alcohol better. And so, yeah, regardless of the beverage, and partly it's because the amount of alcohol in a standard portion of a 12-ounce beer and a 5-ounce glass of wine and a shot of spirits is almost exactly the same. So you're getting the same dose. You just It's better to have it slowly in moderation. And if you like red wine, I'm all for it. Roger and I have shared a glass or two in the past. <laughs> if you like beer and you do it in moderation, then you should stick with beer. So I know what Larry's thinking. La Larry is thinking. My psychic. <laughs> Larry is thinking, if I abstain for four days and then kind of binge, is it the same? Mm-hmm. That is a, a question that's hard to test long term. There have been studies of that. Obviously, if, you're, if we say men can have one to two drinks a day, that does not mean 14 drinks on Friday. It adds up right. to 14 <laughs> drinks max per week. Right. Um, however, it probably in most of the studies, it's probably important to have it about every other day and not less. And that's because of how it impacts your blood's clotting. It impacts how your liver makes good cholesterol. So it's actually probably good on a public health standard, thinking about someone's public health, is to skip a few days so you don't get into people who drink lightly and then feel like they have to drink every day a large amount. So when I talk to primary care physicians and a colleague I work with, Dr. Ken Muckamal, who's the PI of this alcohol study, he actually does say, you know, for his patients, he does not tell them to drink every day, although they'll probably get the same benefit. He's worried about those people going on to drink too much versus telling people to drink almost every other day. Well, I have been known, like in the summertime, not drink at all during the weekdays. Yep. Then you go on the Cape and have that Friday night, Roger, yep. two or three tequilas, whatever, and it's okay. And that's probably yeah. okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I do, obviously don't get behind Escape the wheel. The two no. or three. Yeah, two or three. Right. Stop right. that. And then I crawl home. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was thinking also, we're talking about different, like not myths of facts, but can you share with us, because I know it's pretty popular, the word organics. Can you share with us the whole myth, in fact, with organic, and which products should our listeners be buying that you feel are really more important? Yes, they do demand a higher price, but there's importance to that price relevancy. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a topic that's, as you say, uh, there's a lot of controversy about that and uncertainty, and, and, uh, and part of it relates to we don't really have all the evidence that we would like to have to give a sound answer to your question. And it's a moving target. Some of the conventionally grown things are sprayed differently now than they were 15 years ago. So, Right. That uh, we There are basically sort of two general concerns here. One is the nutrient content of organics versus non-organics. And there, uh, the, that has been looked at. That's easy. You can just analyze the nutrient content of organic uh, peas versus uh, conventionally produced peas. And in general, there, there don't seem to be very many, diff very many differences and the nutrient content. So the issue more relates to contamination by insecticides, herbicides. And uh, there the evidence is still not clear that there's, uh, from long-term studies, that there's a, an important health difference. So the most important thing is to eat the, the healthy foods. And then if you're really eating the, an adequate number of fruits and vegetables and healthy sources of protein, the sort of diet we were describing, then you can sort of, that, then you say, well, what, if you have enough resources and, and money, basically, you can think about organic options within the category of foods that you're consuming. Uh, and I don't go out of my way to buy organic 
foods. I, 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 I don't think that health differences are likely to be very large. But, I, uh, but some of the organic producers uh, do take more care just in general with the way they produce things. I appreciate that. And side by side, I'll often go, I'll, I'll, I may often be more likely to go with the organic product. Uh, and there are some environmental issues, too, that uh, some of the effects of uh, conventional production may be more on the environmental damage side uh, than on the direct health effects. And the environment is very important, too. So how we produce the foods does does make a difference. Uh, the, uh, the very w- widespread uh, uh, Roundup is a big issue, and of course, one of the uh, conventional, uh, some of the conventional foods, uh, many of them are produced with Roundup ready uh, so the weed plants. Killer yeah. around crops. Right, yes, yeah. herbicide. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we are seriously overusing that, uh, but it relates to the basic way we produce our foods. I, so I don't think there are. Uh, likely to be important direct health benefits to the consumer, but uh, the impacts on the overall environment actually are more concerning. But you agree, the, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, Roger, the perception from the consumer is you buy organic, it's much healthier than the other regular products, right? Yeah, we don't really have that yeah. evidence. Yeah, I wow. think that m- maybe where there's an exception, and Walter and I didn't get to discuss this before we came in, um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I agree with Walter because I've worked with him and for him for 30 years, so of course I agree with him. Um, <laughs> Better. Some of it may be, if you think about a vulnerable... Quit kicking him on the yeah, table. He, he's too far away. Yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you think about a vulnerable population, like who would be susceptible to a to a toxin that's added to a food, even though it's in really small quantities. And that's part of it is it's really, really, you know, parts per million or parts per billion sometimes. And there's some of that in all food that we eat. Even organic food does have parts per billion of, you know, things from the environment. But if you think about a vulnerable population, would be a fetus. So obviously I wouldn't tell someone to end a pregnancy because they're eating too much conventional vegetables because they really need to have the vegetables. But, I mean, there, there are the suggestions that if anything is going to be hurt by a toxin at low concentrations, it's more likely to be a fetus than it is a 50-year-old, you know, adult. So, you know, if I were to side on the, you know, we don't know yet completely. There's some suggestions that there could be some concerns that I would say if you're thinking of getting pregnant or if you are pregnant, maybe move towards more of the organic foods. And I don't know which ones necessarily, I wouldn't say don't have, you know, A, B or C. But, I, you know, I think you could, if you wanted to feel much better about it, you could choose organic stuff. So, so, so I'm wondering aloud, given, you know, the environment and everything and, and toxins and whatnot, it seems that over the course of the last 30 years, a huge increase in the number of allergies kids are developing. What, what's going on there? Because before 30 years, I mean, I remember, you know, in the restaurant business, if I had an allergy concern, it was once a week. Now, in any given restaurant, it's 30 to 40 a day. Something is going on. Right. We don't have the really ideal data to look at trends in many of these allergies over time. Uh, There are probably some increases, and there are multiple hypotheses about this. One of the dominant hypotheses is actually that our environment is too clean, and we haven't adequately developed our immune system to deal with the less clean environment Mm. that we used to go. parents. Uh, Perhaps. And this was really uh, definitively shown in the case of nuts, for example, that uh, pregnant women until very recently were told to avoid nuts, to avoid sensitizing their growing fetus. And I thought this was nuts to begin with because uh, (laughs) we we have populations (laughs) that have, where nuts are really an intrinsic part of their daily food and they don't seem to have any excess allergies. So we now have uh, multiple kinds of studies, including a randomized trial, showing that actually having the mothers consume nuts during pregnancy leads to less allergies in the offspring. So there is definitely something uh, true about getting exposed to some of these uh, environmental, normal environmental kinds of uh, uh, things that could, uh, in some people, provoke allergy, that early exposure might be actually beneficial. So being overprotective may be part of the problem. Another hypothesis is that uh, inadequate vitamin D is uh, part of the reason, and that definitely is involved in regulating our immune system. And we, our kids are often not getting very much vitamin D now because they're not running around outside like we, used, well, like we did growing up. They're inside so watching the screens. Yeah. 
Yeah, and or they have screen <clears throat> sun protection on that has SPF, you know, fifty five, so they actually uh, never truly get exposed to the sun because uh, they're wearing armor essentially when they go out to play. Ten minutes of the sun actually is pretty good for making vitamin D. Right. So there are multiple factors that are probably in play here. Obesity is actually an important risk factor for asthma, and that has to explain a fairly substantial piece of the increase in asthma that we're seeing. Uh, And that is an environmental problem. There's too many fast food restaurants around, too many Mm -hmm. TV commercials trying to exploit, as you were talking about earlier, the vulnerabilities of our children. So uh, almost for sure there's not one single cause, and I suspect that all of these have some contribution. Yeah, the microbiome is the other thing that people have thrown around, that sort of the composition of the microbes in our gut have Mm -hmm. changed over time, and they're also really important for immune function. So... We haven't figured that one out yet. We're just starting launching some big studies on that. But even like people say, well, can I go to a store and buy a, you know, probiotics right, or prebiotics? Right. Is that going to be answered all? And, you know, it, thus far, the science on that is so weak. It's clearly a lot of products are being sold. Um, in many cases, we don't know what's in there because there's lots of different kinds of microbes that could be put in the probiotic pill. But, um we don't have even close to the answers for that. I mean, we work with some of the top microbiology people in the world. I've heard them answer the question as like, we don't know yet. We're really, we finally have the technology to measure what's there. And, but it, you know, changes and morphs over time, changes depending on exposure, but it is really important for inflammatory bowel disease and things that are related to immune function that may explain some of the food allergies. There's a company that just started, I, I think it's around here, that takes some of the fecal, you know, uh, matter and reintroduces it into your... The fecal transplants, yes. Right, right, to reduce disease and allergies. What what is your... When you hear that, what goes through your mind? (laughs) (laughs) What goes through my body is more of a concern. But um, I I think we aren't there yet. It has been shown, actually, for some specific cases, for uh, C. difficilis, an organism, an organism, a bacteria that's often acquired in hospital settings, uh, that these fecal transplants probably will help shorten the uh, duration of infection symptoms with that kind of infection. So there are a few limited uh, applications so far. There's lots of other. There's lots of enthusiasm, as Eric was saying, uh, for potentially having some benefits for other health outcomes. But uh, so far. Uh, I think only very limited applications, uh, but there there are ways again that we I, I think uh, that we that we can act to reduce the allergy problem. And one given the very strong evidence for uh, nuts is that women during pregnancy should eat a variety of foods, uh, not be overly restrictive. We know for fish, that's really important during pregnancy, avoiding a few of the very high mercury kinds of fish, but otherwise eat fish, uh, eat shell food, eat lots of... But shell food allergy is also mm-hmm. one of the common allergies, and I think uh, that it's reasonable to eat, eat uh, shellfish during so pregnancy. So early exposure is really a key, yeah. this is what I'm hearing, in terms of the avoidance of some... Uh, I have a one-year-old granddaughter, and what, what, you know, they started giving her nuts yeah. at a very, very early age to make sure that that was not an right. issue. Right, yeah. And that's complete reversal of what mm-hmm. the recommendations were, I think, based on no data, right. uh, even 10 years ago. And then uh, avoiding obesity. And we do know there's a lot we can do to do uh, avoid obesity uh, in terms of healthy diets, physical activity. We're not practicing that in, uh, in our society as a whole, but uh, that, that will reduce asthma. Uh, risk it, it won't necessarily eliminate it, but we can uh, we can definitely act, take actions now that will help reduce the, the what does seem to be an epidemic of asthma and other uh, allergic kind of diseases. You know, yeah, we we talked about obesity and dieting. And I'm just curious because you keep reading these studies, and I think we all agree here, and I've heard it from both of you. You know, uh, that you know eating healthy, eating regular meals. Eating in moderation is really the key. 
and not dieting, you know, it might be the key to really long-term weight management. You see these people doing these diets, and I, years ago, I used to consult the biggest loser of the TV show. You know, they lost 180 pounds. I know one guy put, put 180 back on. So my question is, like, how, it's really sound advice, but how do we break this dieting cycle mindset? What has to happen to get us off the weight loss diet cycle mindset, you know, and get us eating just regularly healthy and get that word diet out of our system? Yeah, that's a... Uh that's a great question that we could spend three hours talking we, about. We have time. Yeah. We, no, really, this podcast yeah, can be three parts. We can do three parts. No, I mean, I think, um, yes, I mean, it is true that as we've watched the country, children and adults gain weight, we have given the message, look, it's time to lose weight. Everybody should take weight off. And I think the first message should be we should sustain where we are and try to prevent further weight gain because that's the first challenge uh, to losing weight. Um, and there now, there's actually a lot of really good science now on weight loss programs and what works and what doesn't. The problem is it's also the most fraud reported to the national government where people are, are offering weight loss programs and people later on report back that, you know, there's billions of dollars due to, to fraud just for, you know, false advertising or over-commercializing or propaganda related to, to weight loss. So. You know, the reason why it's a big business because there's a lot of people that struggle with it. And I think so the number one thing is, it, you know, it's not easy. Just like smoking cessation, you don't just one day wake up and say, okay, I'm going to lose 10 pounds this week. It's just it takes a very long time to lose a substantial amount of weight. And many of the programs do work in the short term because people are adhering to them and they're thinking about what they're putting in their mouth. So what it comes down to is calories. Obviously, if you're eating 200 calories extra a day, you're going to gain weight. So the first thought is, you know, eating less, and then it makes it easier to eat less if you're having a high-quality meal. If you're having highly processed carbohydrates, it's going to make you hungry three hours later. We know the biological response to that. So if you tell yourself, I'm not going to eat very much, I'm just going to eat bad food, your body doesn't let you do that. You have a biological response later on that you just get so hungry. So you have to find a meal and a way of eating that you can do with your lifestyle, whether you go out to dinner three times a week or you stay at home and cook at home. And there's many actually really good solutions. I mean, I can start naming the diets that have been proven to work. And the Mediterranean diet is the one that has been proven the longest to work. But there are higher protein diets that have been shown to work. The number one diet that has failed the most is the low-fat diet. Mm. It's one that people can't mm. adhere to. It doesn't taste good. You can, we've, there's been nine, a nine-year study where they had dietitians sit with people 18 times in a year to teach them how to eat a low-fat diet. And when they were really adhering, they actually lost a little bit of weight, but not very much. And then they just lost adherence and they gained all the weight back, so like you, you said. So you say the diet, sustainable success, in your opinion, is probably one of the most... Um, the, one of the best to I think follow. it's the most tested. Yeah. There's now um, intermittent fasting. People have done that. There's starting to be some good studies. It looks like it works. It's harder to adhere to that because two days a week, you actually have to eat only 25% of your calories. So those are miserable days. <laughs> but the rest of the time, you kind of eat what you'd like, and people do lose weight in the long term. But the longer-term studies shows that people can't adhere to that as well as they can to the Mediterranean diet, which is fruits and vegetables and healthy oils. One, it tastes good. And two, it's satiating. So you don't feel like you have to eat a lot more snacks at night. Or, you know, I think there's still a lot we don't know about, quote, diets, about what time of day we should be eating. There's clearly times that are better or for worse. You know, should we have 80% of our calories an hour before we go to sleep? But some people have big dinners without much, you know, they get up, skip breakfast, have a simple lunch, and then come home and eat all their calories an hour before they go to sleep. That probably biologically acts differently than someone who spreads that out over the course of a day. Is it, is it a myth or a fact? You mentioned about go to sleep. We've heard like at two hours before you're going to go to sleep, don't eat anything. What, what's that? Is that a myth, a fact? What is that about? Well, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is a gastric reflex on a full stomach to lie down, and that just physically there can be reflex back up into the esophagus, which is not good and related to uh, multiple problems, including esophageal cancer. Uh, so uh, there's that. But then also 
uh, one th- uh, we just overload our system and uh, one of the things that is beneficial is of course in many ways is physical activity but uh, having even moderate moving about after a meal does help clear the sugar from our blood and the fatty acids from our blood but if you just uh, eat a big meal like uh, Eric was describing and watch TV for an hour and go to bed uh, you're not clearing uh, the the, sugar, the blood sugar and the uh, fatty acids from your blood. Mm-hmm. So there's uh, there is some evidence that spreading out the calories over the day, or even emphasizing bigger intake earlier in the day, uh, is metabolically advantageous. Whether uh, and maybe better for weight control as well. But but it's some of these even uh, physical issues about uh, related to reflux can be important too. Yeah, so yeah. But, but as Eric says, we need more data. There, but at, at the moment, given what evidence we would have, uh, not eating most of the calories or a large part late in the day is probably desirable. There was a, a woman that came to the nutritional roundtable early on that had dietary advice. I'm not sure you guys recall. Eat everything in moderation. Oh, no. <laughs> Julia Child, that's right. That, that, that was her thing. One, one last question. I'm going to put a I like that. <laughs> so, so one of the big looming questions now in the field of public health, I'm guessing, uh, is the issue of legalized marijuana. Uh, which one of you are going to become the, the marijuana guru? So you're going to be putting it in a salad, are you, Roger? <laughs> <laughs> brownies, I was thinking brownies. If, it, if, it'll sell. <laughs> if it's got a dark chocolate and it's got a healthy fat in the brownie, then <laughs> 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 right. we, we, we will save that yeah. for the, uh, the next, part of the next podcast. But <laughs> as, as we wrap up, it would be very interesting for you to give us some what you guys eat is actually would be very interesting, I think, to not only Larry and I, but I, but I think the audience as well. So if, if you could sort of give us a you know, quick sort of synopsis of what you eat in the course of a day week. And also, and, and, which one of you, and which one of you is healthier? And also, <laughs> I'm curious also, besides that, which food will you not touch? Okay. The ice cream they're not going to touch, I, I guarantee. The homemade potato chips are pretty just, good. Uh, <laughs> Go in moderation. <laughs> yes, uh, I, uh, I pretty much do eat uh, a Mediterranean-type diet, but uh, which means, uh, as Eric said, uh, essentially healthy fats, uh, healthy forms of uh, carbohydrate and not not too much, but uh, it would be whole grains, not too much bread. The fact that we grind whole grains up into fine flour to make bread actually does mean we absorb that, glu- break that down and absorb it into glucose more rapidly. Uh, and uh, for protein sources, uh, more plant-based protein sources, but I do have uh, fish and poultry uh, maybe about once a day. Uh, th- that... Um, and lots of fruits and vegetables, uh, and that's pretty satisfying. So I start off the day usually with uh, whole grains like uh, still cut oats and add some nuts and maybe a little bit of yogurt uh, and some, some berries, uh, and you can do all kinds of combinations with that. So, uh, and then uh, ride my bike to the office, and mm-hmm. I'm off to a good start. And Walter, what one food would you not touch? Uh, well, I very rarely have red meat. Oh, see, I've worked with Walter too long. Um, yeah, I, I won't go into the explanation for each one of the things. Some of the foods you think about is like, as a human beings, we evolved probably to use most efficiently foods that were available a half a million years ago. And that's part of the paleo diet. I mean, I think that's a bad diet and there's parts of the paleo I don't like. But, um, you know, I, I eat a fair amount of berries, and some of it is the research that we've done on the polyphenols that are in berries. And so, yeah, I think... Every morning I have berries of some kind, and, you know, it's either with muesli, so it's whole grains and some yogurt or, you know, a little bit of milk. Um, and, you know, I certainly drink coffee and tea during the day. Um, I would say probably five or six nights a week I have wine with dinner. Um, and I, yeah, our dinners usually are either a vegetarian-type dinner or either with fish, which is probably two or three times a week, or chicken you know, once a week or something like that. Walter so. has it every day. I just want to point it out. <laughs> oh, sorry. Well, if I got salmon delivered to my house, Roger, I could have it more often. What's the one food you, you in touch? Yeah, you know, as Walter said, I grew up in the Midwest where I ate way too much red meat and processed meat growing up because it was there. Um, 
yeah, I probably have red meat, you know, twice or three times a year. And again, you know, it's not because I'm so anal about it that I, I taste absolutely delicious when I have it. So it's not that I've lost the taste for it. It's just I don't see the need for it. So, I mean, absolutely not touch thanks to Walter's work and some of our department's work. Uh, trans fat is something that my kids know to look on the label before they give me a food, if it's, even if it's from a different country, to make sure it does not say partially hydrogenated poly, you know, soybean oil on it. So that is clearly something I try to avoid. If you could live in any country outside of the U.S., where would you, uh, where would you live? Uh, well, it's uh, interesting. I definitely tend to gravitate toward Greece and Italy and that part of the world uh, there in terms of um, being uh, living in a place where there's lots of good food available uh, for most of the year. Uh, it, it does make it easy there, and getting being physically active all year round is uh, easier and, there too. And, and Eric, if you went into the witness protection program, where would you end up? <laughs> uh, Roger wants me to say Norway, but I think, um, I, you know, I actually I, one I would live in Spain because of the climate and the food, and but more southern Spain than northern Spain, or Denmark. Denmark has the most progressive public health program. So they were the first to really say countrywide trans fats illegal. And that was like a decade ago, right? So, and they always, Denmark always comes out as the happiest people in the world. So I must be missing something. So even though the climate's not as nice in Denmark, I think I would, uh, I would choose Denmark second after Barcelona. Okay. Whew. The Lots of information. Fascinating. You know, Roger, um, I know you always wanted to be a sportscaster. <laughs> and, um, I to be a nutritionist. And, and you ended up with us. <laughs> yeah. right? Oh, this was sporting. This. But, but no, but that was fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. No, this was, this was really great. Very informative. Yeah, it was fascinating. Thanks for being with us. Yes, thank you very much. Remember to subscribe to Name Brands on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. We're at Name Brands Pod on Twitter or on Facebook at Name Brands Podcast. That's it for us. We'll be back to talk to you again next Wednesday.